Thanks for tuning in uh, to this podcast. Um, big news. Uh, I have uh, been contacted by John Deere, and uh, they are now uh, a sponsor of the podcast. So um, so you'll hear on occasion some ads related to John Deere that, uh, that I'll be playing. And, and so great, great thing for, uh, for me to continue uh, bringing this stuff to everybody and, and continue to try to figure out how to can get better and better at it. Um, so with that, I wanted to, uh, to bring back a guest, uh, my first one when I was originally, uh, started this idea of, uh, of doing podcasts, um, John Patterson from Atlanta athletic club. And, uh, John obviously is a great friend of mine and, and, uh, you know, biggest, biggest, supporter as well as you know i try to support him as well so john welcome uh, to your second podcast well thanks Stephen. great to be here well um you know obviously you know the the news of the support from from john deere and sponsoring the podcast was was humbling for me but you know i wanted to bring you on as well because one of the things i wanted to talk about uh, was you know, and looking at new technology was the GPS sprayers, and uh, there's not a whole lot of people out there that have them. I know I do, and I know you do. So I figured, you know what? Let's bring John back on and and uh, see if we can do it even better. And, and maybe this time we won't talk as much about reels. So I, you know, I think some of the questions I have thought up for you is is not revolving around cutting units, although we love and could talk about them for days. Um, we've got some some other big uh i think big topics to discuss so um so the gps sprayers i think you know obviously everybody's trying to figure out value wise is it worth it is it not worth it um and you know what are your th- you know i've had mine for about a year now i think you're pretty close to the same length of time with yours um what do you what are you seeing with yours and and what are the benefits and challenges that you face with them john well, yeah, we we have had ours for just over a year now. We just uh, re-upped on our GPS uh, subscription, uh, so I, I that bill is still fresh in my mind. So <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I know that we're just beyond a year with them. Uh, the I I had to uh, actually ask our uh, director of agronomy, Lucas Harvey. Uh, about the actual savings because I don't see that uh, line item all the time. Uh, but he tells me that we're experiencing right at 15% uh, savings over time so far, and that savings has really increased over time as we've found more ways to utilize the sprayers. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it can be – uh, the best thing since sliced bread, but if it's not out there actually working for you, you you can't experience those those potential savings. And it also depends on um, the chemicals that you're that you're applying and and 
that kind of thing. Uh, how many acres total, of course, that you're that you're applying. So uh, we've really been uh, really happy overall with the units. Uh, I don't see them in the shop except for regular maintenance. Uh, we have had a couple little issues with them, but uh, no more than than any other. Uh, piece that we that we have especially uh, turf sprayer wise sure you know I, I i agree with you i think you know initially and and we were thinking this too like initially you don't know what your savings is going to be you know you i know when we were talking about it and pitching it to uh to our director of finance we're thinking you know we don't want to throw this huge number out there and then okay well let's reduce your chemical budget by 25 percent. you know so um right. We were trying to figure out what what a good number for that is, and I think we ended up going with like let's start with five percent and let's see where we go from there. And I think our number is pretty close to twenty to twenty five percent somewhere in that neighborhood. I mean, just in greens alone, it was a I think an acre less uh, than what we were spraying previously. And you know, you think about the overlap of products all the time, and 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 more so, not even in the savings aspect, but just the things that you miss. You know, when you're spraying a you know something for weeds or or you know or insects and you know you see you always see these areas well man why we got so many weeds right there you you don't realize that you miss some of those areas and with the gps obviously it it uh keeps you from doing that so you know that isn't necessarily in a savings aspect but but you know just from applying products and applying them equally as well you know not double applying them in in specific areas that you didn't realize you'd already been in and that type of thing so um so that was some of the things that we that's been another area where uh, we've really experienced a a, uh, a quality uh, increase. Is uh, you know we're in the transition zone here, and we are um, applying colorant to our fairways, and it's just been great uh, for us. The the having the consistency of the application um, has has really improved our overall look. Uh, being able to apply that colorant to the fairways and the t-tops really uh, managing that uh, perimeter line and not having the overlaps so you got the dark streaks and so on it's it's really helped with that yeah i mean i was also in you know when i think when we originally were looking we looked at the smith co first and then you know we ended up going with the deer and one of the biggest reasons for us was just the uh the the years that they've had already using the product meaning you know they didn't come out with a new one specifically for golf they've been using that same system on farming for years so you know there was a little bit more comfort in spending the kind of money those things cost um because they've been used for quite a few years did you guys look at it the same way i mean obviously i'm sure you know knowing you i know you looked at all the different options that were out there and available you know what was your big your big decision maker well certainly there was the comfort factor uh, having uh, you know these basic systems used in in ag for so so long and uh, just being able to to rely on that if a farmer can rely on on these units running over hundreds of of acres and our or thousands of acres even our our fairways should be a piece of cake and it of course i it came down to the demo uh where 
out there running up and down the fairways and just with uh, blue dye and you could tell immediately uh, just the accuracy of the unit and uh, we had to actually get on a couple of our assistants because we, we find them you know checking emails running down the fairway and stuff while this unit is auto steering not paying attention to his booms you got to watch out for complacency when something like this works as well as it does. So it, uh, it was uh, a, a real eye-opener for, for us. And, again, that comfort factor, knowing that the, these specific units um, have basically just been taken off of a, a tractor and, and transplanted onto our, our turf sprayers. Yeah. What would you say to a clubs that were kind of considering it um, or didn't know, you know, is this an affordable thing to do or not an affordable thing to do? Are we really seeing those savings? You know, what, uh, what would you tell them? Well, it's a commitment over time. You can't just look at this as a solution for one season or four seasons or, or uh, five seasons. It's, it's over time and really look at, uh, not only strictly the savings, but also the improvement of the product. Uh, the it, it all depends on again on how you use it. Uh, it's not going to give you many benefits if it's if it's only running out to do uh, a couple of applications. Uh, the more you can utilize it, the better off you'll be. Uh, start being creative with thinking about just where can I use this? What kind of opportunities does it open up for our club? Uh, I don't know that it, it couldn't be used. It's something might, some folks might consider is, is uh, using it on multiple courses or um, actually talking to your neighbors, seeing if you couldn't, uh, couldn't put a deal together where you have uh, usage on, on, more acres because the more acres the better all right well for those of you that are considering you know the john deere precision sprayer uh, the technology has been proven over hundreds of millions of documented acres just between golf courses as well as farms as as john stated Um, they utilize the latest in rtk global navigation system processing and uh, also ensure you get the same results day after day they also help you reduce labor, excessive overlap, and time on the core spraying. So it's a combination you find you can't find on any other GPS sprayer. So if you're interested and, and you think uh, a, G, a John Deere GPS sprayer is great, would be great for you, uh, talk to your local dealer about a demo or search John Deere turf sprayers online. Um, certainly great product for us. Uh, as John has stated, some of the benefits that they've seen um, and uh, – and so if you're interested, uh, make sure you do that. Um, moving on from GPS sprayers, John, uh, let's talk about equipment managers, one of our uh, favorite subjects. Um, obviously, there's been challenges finding equipment managers, and you know I see that continuing. But what do superintendents need to do to find someone but also keep them? You know, this is something that I'm sure you're seeing more of and, and we are going to continue to see more of. If you remember those meetings we had when we did IGCMA at the Future of Equipment Managers, when we had that discussion at Lake City, what, probably 15 years ago, saying that at some point this was going to be a big issue. And I think we're closely getting there. So, you know, what uh, 
what would you advise superintendents, um, A, on finding them, and, and B, you know, keeping them? Well, uh, it is one of the tougher subjects that we face uh, these days. It seems like it's not only the golf business, but all of the uh, service industry type jobs uh, are getting tougher and tougher to fill. We face, in our industry, we face competition from uh, not just the automotive sector. People generally think of, you know, automotive mechanics and such, uh, but also the construction industry with the uh, employment being so low right now. I know that there's just a ton of competition from everybody from JLG, CAT, um, beer, uh, ag, and and construction equipment uh, to, uh, you know, it seems like everybody is looking for technicians. So it, it does make it uh, really uh, tough in our industry to, to make this uh, more attractive to uh, a potential candidate who might be looking at whether he is going to go to work at a golf course or is he going to go to work at a, uh, a construction equipment dealer or so on. So, um, it, look, it, it, if, it, if you can't, really increase the you can't just keep as a business of course we are running a business so it, it, and as a business we can't just keep throwing money at the at the problem and, and think that hey if i um you know start paying 30 40 50 dollars an hour i'm going to automatically get good candidates so there has to be um, what um mr pearsall at lake city said so many years ago there has to be industry awareness, uh, and so we have to do some outreach. We have to reach out to the uh, the the local schools in our area, the community colleges, uh, folks that are running uh, automotive tech uh, kind of uh, kind of operations, and as well as reaching out to everybody from high school. Uh, guidance counselors, uh, there just has to be local community outreach. I, I, I feel because uh, the the a lot of it is the lack of awareness of uh, of our industry. Uh, people uh, who are uh, technically minded like to work with their hands. Coming up and through school, uh, generally uh, don't even consider this industry is an option because the other industries, the automotive industry uh, and the construction equipment industry uh, and so on are doing such a good job of promoting their industries and, and promoting that industry awareness. So um, as far as attracting people, uh, there's a lot that we can do with our facilities that don't cost a lot of money and can make it a more attractive place to work. Uh, just uh, cleaning up and having good lighting and uh, safety equipment, things like that in the shop, uh, so that a potential candidate comes in and sees that they've got a, a well-organized, uh, safe, clean place to work. 
um, it would go a long way in my opinion. Right. You know, one of the, I think one of the big things that, uh, that I've been talking about over the years is, you know, also being aware of what we're asking for, you know, you, you want an equipment manager that can weld and can, you know, rebuild an engine and can do hydraulics and he can do cutting units and he's got a troubleshoot. He's got to do services. He's got, you know, the, the list goes on, right? All the different things that we're looking for when we're looking for an equipment manager sometimes. And, and so if you go and you take your car to get it fixed, you know, there isn't just normally one guy in there that does all of those things. You know, you've got a guy that changes the oil. you got a guy that does electrical. you got another guy that's hooking your car up to a machine. You know, you got the guy that does the services, a guy that does the tires. Um, it's not the same guy doing all of those things generally. So, you know, in our business, we're asked to be kind of specialist in all these different zones. And, and I don't know that, uh, you know, it's difficult. I don't know, A, is it realistic? But B, you know, it, 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 should we be looking for some other things? You know, is it more personality and then we can teach the other parts of it or, you know, what's that investment look like? You know, am I, am I investing in a guy that doesn't know a lot about the equipment side of it and, and I'm investing in the personality and we'll spend the money to, to help this guy get educated on the golf side of things. Um, I think that's one point I would make. I think the other point would be, you know, in, when we were growing up, you a lot earlier than me, but when, when we were growing up, you know, we still worked on vehicles in the yard with the dad, right? I mean, we were still doing those things, but what do they do now? You know, they take their car in, you know, you, you got to get it hooked up to a computer. So, you know, even kids that may be good at doing things with their hands may not know that because they're not getting that, that introduction to it. Like, like we may have. That's correct. And back to your point about the dealerships, you know, you've got the, the brake service tech, the transmission and driveline tech, uh, all these different areas of the ASE certification that um, you don't find many masters that have passed all of the uh, different area testing. And the expectation that we have in the golf business, you, you do have uh, all those types of systems working on our equipment, but we also have the cutting units. We yep. also have the hydraulics and things like that. So um, it is it is something that, you, you know, I was just having a, a conversation uh, earlier this morning, uh, as it turns out, with our landscape superintendent, whose son is looking for uh, a path and has tried some golf course maintenance type of, of positions and now he's thinking maybe he, he would like to steer into the shop and he asked me what uh, what he felt like his son should should look for schooling wise to come in I said you know uh, so much of our things are specialized uh, if you take a basic automotive course at a local community college that would give you a good head start because at least you're learning about how things are bolted together and uh, you know, the, the different systems involved in, in making everything run. And then, uh, you, you know, you could find somebody who's looking for an assistant and do a lot of on-the-job training. Um, I myself came from an automotive background and then spent about 20 years uh, in the business, in the golf business, uh, learning my way up 
uh, through the different systems and, and so on. Um, I'd never really had any specific training um, uh, growing up other than, yes, years and years ago, Stephen, we did have shot class. <laughs> and, uh, I was uh, I was exposed to that kind of uh, that kind of environment at an early age. Uh, my father taught me a lot in the in the shop about the way things worked and the logic behind it. And then I went to work at an automotive shop uh, run by a family friend who taught me how to be a professional mechanic. And then you know, but I didn't I didn't uh, get into this industry until I was 30 years old. So. It was something that I had to lay a lot of groundwork, and I think that some of the young guys today too think that uh, it, it might might have some um, uh, unrealistic expectations about uh, getting into a position and and really being able to earn the the uh, the, the pay that they'd like, and not knowing and not having the experience. Um, there is a certain part of paying your dues that goes along with it, and it's it's not just spending time in the saddle. There's just so much to learn. There's so many different systems, and cutting units, as you know, you and I have talked about at <laughs> at length, is that it, it, they're their own animal, and you can spend uh, quite a bit of time just learning that one aspect of of the job. So. Right. Um, but back to, you know, how do we attract these kind of people? You know, I said that, you know, you can't throw money at, at it and expect to solve the problem. But I, I feel like a lot of people really do need to step up and be realistic and knowing that uh, we're competing now. I, I know that our local uh, cat dealer is uh, hiring guys at, at 20 bucks an hour to sweep the floor and, and clean chop. Uh, you know, their technicians over there are making anywhere from 24 to $35 an hour um, to work on the heavy equipment. And, you know, it's, it's not the same thing, but it's the same pool of talent, I think, that we're drawing from uh, the mechanically minded individual who's willing to uh, commit to an industry and commit to a career. Because uh, that's what really what we're looking for. We aren't looking for people to just come in and and punch a clock and and not really have an interest in what they're doing. We we're looking for somebody to have a certain level of passion in, in what they're doing and uh, look at it as a career rather than just you know, a, a job that maybe they'll they'll go find something else in a in a year or two. Sure. Well, let's talk about this from that other perspective, and that is the equipment managers. I mean, there's a lot of movement out there with equipment managers, and some of that movement is to get better jobs. Some of it's retiring, and some uh, equipment managers are getting replaced. Uh, I mean, do you think that the expectations for equipment managers has changed, and you know what what potential challenges do you uh, do you see for technicians moving forward? Oh well, I I certainly think that the the position has changed over time I and mean, and you and I have worked hard to change it. Sure. Um, it's, uh, for, for years, it was the grease monkey in the barn, right? It, you had this, um, this mentality and, and the equipment itself has changed.
changed so much over time where you could get away with with having somebody who maybe didn't have a lot of education but had a basic sense of the way things worked and could could run a grease gun and and uh, keep things going but that was back years and years ago when our the expectations of our um, aftercut appearance were, weren't as high as they are today uh, turf types uh, were different than they are today um, cultural practices and so on and so forth have changed over time and it all works together right so um, now we are expected to know these systems and know them well uh, we're expected to be able to uh, protect our owners uh, capital investment and uh, act as professionals and and take care of our facility and all those things that go along with being a modern equipment manager and so and, and that has changed um, over the years the um, the complexity of the equipment back to that we've got now um, machines running around with three onboard computers talking to each other over CAN bus, just like you would in modern automotive. Um, so the diagnostic skills are, are advanced from where they were uh, years ago. You know, my first job in this business back in 93 uh, was as an assistant mechanic in my first uh, set of tasks was to go uh, jumpstart all the equipment uh, in the barn because all the batteries, the charging systems were uh, shot or switches had been bypassed because nobody knew what was going on with it. And that was an accepted norm in that facility. I'm not going to name the facility, but the, uh, everybody had just gotten used to, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go triplex greens this morning. I better go get a mechanic to start the unit. And now we're in a situation where everything is um, computer controlled and you turn the key and, it, and our reliability has gotten much better, but we're running, uh, you know, tier four diesels and uh, these units are, are far advanced from where they were. Uh, I made the point way back when I said, you know, that you, you uh, to the existing uh, equipment manager, I use that uh, term in quotes there. Uh, I said, you know, if you, if, spend as much time uh, fixing all this stuff rather than building a really nice jump cart, uh, we'd be in a lot better shape. Well, he didn't last too long, and I wound up inheriting my, my first equipment manager's position, and, and we rolled on from there. But the, um, the evolution of the equipment manager today, it's tough to, to now manage the balance between the management side and actually turning wrenches on the shop floor. I've Still, by far, my favorite thing to do is to turn those wrenches and to actually uh, repair and adjust machinery out on the shop floor. That's what I got into this. That's what really attracted me in the first place. Um, I've learned to like the management side of it, and I had to learn that. And I think that a lot of mechanics do need to... Uh, experience that learning curve with learning the management side. Uh, it's it's different. It's, it takes um, a lot of times a different set of uh, it's a different skill set, and it it didn't it hasn't come automatically to me. It's something that I've had to work on and continue to work on. 
communication skills, uh, budget management, uh, all the things that go into managing a, a safety and training programs, all these things that go into the, quote, management side of being an equipment manager. I, I like to say, tell people that, you know, I can manage equipment very easily because I know that uh, when the when I tighten something properly and, and it's to the correct torque spec, I know it's it's not going to come back apart. But managing people, uh, you, you get into all these gray areas and, and things that that I, I was just wasn't used to. So yeah. it's um, I I think that it's changed over time, but I don't think that it's too much to ask of a, of a manager to do these things. It's just that as long as the expectations are there and the communication is there, uh, I've been very fortunate in my career, uh, over the years to work with, with professionals in the industry who are very good communicators at, and have laid out expectations and set timetables for, for my performance and, my personal growth in the position. Um, I feel like in talking to some of my colleagues that, you know, certainly not everybody has that benefit. And um, I wish that they did more often than not. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's really helpful to, for personal and professional growth to have, to be working in an environment where you, you get that support. And I think that support is, is vital to to being able to excel in your position. Yeah. Do, do you think that we get kind of stagnant in doing the same things that we've always done and and no one's complained, so we just sit in that box, so to speak, and instead of looking right. at all the different things that are happening around us and how things are, are changing and how other people are doing things and trying to stay on top of everything versus waiting for someone to come to us and say, Hey, you know, they're doing this down at such and such. Well, you know, should we be doing that? You know, in in my mind, right. When, when my boss has to come tell me that we need to start moving further ahead, then it tells in my mind, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, I should always be, you know, right there, seeing what's going on, seeing what the new advances are, seeing where things are going, seeing how different people do things and, and then seeing how those fit in our operation. Do you feel like, you know, for those equipment managers are having a tough time at their operation or feel like they're under a microscope because now, you know, with Twitter and everything, you know, there's all kinds of ideas being spread all over the place. Do you feel like uh, we're kind of our own worst enemy and getting stuck in a box instead of, pushing, pushing it a little bit. I mean, I'm the king of push, but, but, uh, but I mean, I I feel like sometimes we kind of get stuck in that box and we're just going to wait for someone to come say something before we get outside of it and start looking around. I I say I have very few original ideas. Um, I, my shop is full of, I, uh, systems and, and procedures that I've, I've, uh, stolen or uh, been given uh, freely from from other shops, uh, and that's the power of association, right? You um, in any association, professional association, uh, we lift each other up and we right. we uh, we 
get those ideas from others and from neighbors. You know, when I first uh, moved here to uh, Atlanta uh, from Florida five years ago, I one of the first things I did was reach out to uh, to my neighbors. I'm very fortunate uh, to have uh, uh, some really sharp guys uh, at golf clubs uh, right around uh, my area. Um, perfect example, Trent Manning. Um, is right over at uh, Ainsley Sutton Down, which is uh, you know just about 40 minute drive away from me. Um, folks may recognize his name. He's been really uh, working uh, a lot with GCSAA and, and developing the um, the certificate programs for uh, for equipment managers. And and it's uh, it, you talk about a sharp guy and, and a lot of uh, a lot of information for me, local information as far as vendors and, and uh, you, you know, information about equipment and shop setups and all these kind of things. You, uh, you just reach out to your neighbors. You'd be surprised what you can, what you can find out. But um, I do agree that, you know, a lot of time we, we, and when I got here, that was a perfect example too. Um, you know the uh, the guys in the shop. Uh, some of them have been here for for many years and had just always done it a certain way, and uh, never had uh, a, an idea to to try it a different way. And and uh, when I started introducing some some different maintenance practices and and ways of going about things. I did get some initial resistance to that change, but I think, you know, we all do tend to, uh, it's a human trait to kind of resist change. But uh, once the guys saw the the positive results out on the golf courses, they they really came around. And now uh, they they are really much more open to new ideas and and trying things a different way. So um, the proof is in the experience and, and, as far as that goes, but um, I, I really believe in the, that a power of associations, not just professional associations, but associating with your neighbors, associating with people in, in some other industries. Some of the things that I've tried in, in the shop have, have come out of, uh, you know, automotive shops. Some have come out of um, commercial operations. I've, uh, in previous life, I was in the printing industry and, and working in machine shops and so on and so forth. So I was able to bring that experience in as well. So right. the more you can look outside and, and garner ideas, the, the better off, you know, you can, you can make your operation. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a good story, a positive story on this as well. And, and uh, it, it, it got me thinking, man, maybe I should do like a, a technician of the month on my podcast where, you know, you hear those stories all the time of the positive things that are going on and that technicians are doing. And, you know, in this example, uh, Jason Skaggs, don't know if you know him at Isla del Sol, uh, in Tampa. Um, he volunteered to come over and work with us for the LPGA event and, um, in January. And so he came over and, and, uh, you know, mainly to help out and to get, you know, as we all do when we volunteer to try to get new ideas to implement at our facilities. And, and, um, I work things a little differently and during volunteer, I let the guys get in there and do stuff. You know, I'm not having them. All right, move that cart over here and go do, you know, doing piddly things. I, I let them set cutting units and, and do all those things. And, and, uh, but in the end, I've got our head technician that checks them all before they get put on the machine. So, that way we know that the consistency is there and, and they're being set up right. 
Um, but during that process, we, we sit down with all the volunteers and we let them ask us questions, you know, any questions that they want to ask. And, and I remember Jason saying, you know, I thought I knew a lot about cutting units until I got here. And he's like, I don't know what to think. You know, there's, you guys do some things so totally different between the leveling table and some of the other practices that we implement. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's good. You know, maybe you know, I said, listen, it, it doesn't mean you should pack up and go to your shop and start doing it all this way. But, you know, looking and picking up little things that, that you can implement to make yourself better, that's what it's all about. Um, so in the end, you know, he goes back and he starts talking to his boss and, and talking about the leveling table. And, you know, man, how do I sell this thing? This thing's expensive and so on and so forth. So I'm working with him to try to explain it and, you know, his boss is pushing on him a little bit to get as much detail and information as he can, which everyone should, you know, I think you, you know, in order to sell things, the the best way to learn how to do it is to get pushed back, right? Because, okay, well, I've got to figure out a new way to sell this. Um, and eventually, you know, he got it through. He was very persistent. He did, got more education. He talked to more people. He asked questions to everybody, but those are the things that I don't see a lot of. You know, the drive to want to push to get what you need to do the job the right way. You know, we get told no, and then we just fold our car, 10 up, and move it off, right? You know, we don't we don't sit there and, and keep pushing and tr- keep trying to figure out ways to, to get it done. So, you know, bravo to him for getting it, and, I, and he ordered it, and, and it's on, his, on its way to him. But, you know, I don't see a lot of that from technicians in this business that they, they push hard enough to get the things they need. They that they see these things and they say, well, you know, I'll never get that. Or, you know, he could easily say that. He could say, you know, my boss is never going to get that. And then as soon as he gets a little bit of pushback, he says, yep, I knew it. And then go do his thing. But, you know, in this, in this particular example, you know, for me, that's a standout thing that, that was done. And it doesn't, you know, the thing about it is it doesn't matter what the name of the club is. It's not, you know, a top 100 club in the world. It's, you know, it's a great club. And, and he's pushing to, to try to get those standards um, the, as high as he can get them for his membership. And, and those are the, the, that's the inside, that's the look that, that everyone should, should be looking for, I think, or that drive, that push um, to, to not take no to, or not even no, but just get me more information. Um, and, and we tend to sometimes stop at that point. So, I just wanted to a you know for from Jason's standpoint let him know that man this is this is what people are looking for they want you to push the standards and continue to get to grow and get things better but also to explain to technicians that man don't don't just you know you get told no and then we just pack up and go home it, you know we keep pushing we keep trying to figure out ways to sell it and the more it keeps coming up the more people start looking at it the more articles that I have to read about it you know maybe maybe the more it continues to address that um, Definitely. So, yeah. So we talked, you talked a little bit about evolution of the equipment management role and some of the things we've talked about so far, you know, what do you think it's evolving too much? Do you think we've got too much to do now with the business side of equipment management, <laughs> managing people, managing fleet, um, the hydraulics, the electrical, the cutting units, the quality of cut, the after cut appearance, the all, you know, all the different things that we keep stacking on this job. Do you feel like a, that, that's too much or do you feel like that's what it should be, but we should have enough help in the shop to a um, get the jobs done the right way, but also to keep developing guys to move up into bigger roles. I probably gave you the answer, but that I think it is. 
Well, um, I don't think it's, quote, too much, Mm -hmm. um, but I think that expectations need to be managed by everybody involved, and that's that's from all of the stakeholders on down. Um, The, uh, you you know, we've... (laughs) We, we've been asking for more responsibility for years, yep. I, I feel, you know, uh, I think most of us have anyway. And it, it, asking for that as a way to kind of control our own environment to a certain extent. It's not to, um, I, I, I think that we all feel more comfortable when we have more input and, and sure. more um, more influence over our our uh, our work environment. So, um, but yes, uh, everybody needs to to know that you know you got to spend time on these these uh, projects and, and areas of uh, a uh, equipment. Uh, training program doesn't get written in 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 afternoon um, especially you know I was looking around and we uh, it, I was making another presentation for uh, for our board members and it, we've got 55 different specific types of equipment in our facility that that I'm responsible for maintaining uh, that's everything from the backhoe loader on down to the uh, line trimmer, stick edger type of equipment, uh, everything in between. Uh, we don't just have um, one specific type of chemical sprayer. We've got six different kinds of <laughs> of chemical sprayers that we utilize on right. a regular basis. Fertilizer spreaders. It just goes on and on. Um, so, uh, but I've had, uh, again, the benefit of having training in time management and uh, just that end of it where it it has made a big difference in in my career to to take on more, push myself more uh, so that now, you know, I I said before that I, I don't spend as much time as I want to and actually with a wrench in my hand. Right. Um, but the, the time that I do have a wrench in my hand, I'm really pushing more for to find out you know, how can I gain efficiencies in, in processes and procedures in the shop. Um, the, so I, I feel like overall my balance is, is just about right. Um, uh, the the time that I'm required to uh, manage my uh, my fleet maintenance program, uh, I've I've gotten better at that over the years, so that that time requirement has has dropped down, and it's uh, it's not that you know this job isn't ten uh, percent on this and thirty percent on that. It's so dynamic seasonally right. and. Uh, with agriculture or agronomic practices that, that are, are going on. So the variety is there uh, to keep me stimulated the, and interested and the 
the expectations are there, yes, for uh, quality aftercut appearance and uh, maintaining the capital investment always. But within that, uh, I've got the the facility management and, and personnel management and so on and so forth. Um, and in implementing all these things, we've actually been able to um, lower the labor requirement in the shop while increasing our um, increasing our perceived quality out on the golf courses. Our aftercut appearance is better, and you know the the uh, the membership doesn't always know why they think the course looks better, but uh, they know it does. Right. <laughs> and, and that I, I think comes around to the consistency of the aftercut appearance and the uh, just having the detail work done because everything uh, is is working well on the, on the golf course, managed well on the golf courses as well as they are in the shop. Yeah, I mean, I think too that you know, you when you're when you're an equipment manager and you have a team underneath you you know, you're trying to do the best job you can, not just for the club and yourself, but also for them because they're learning from you. And their future career is kind of dependent on your practices. You are showing them, teaching them, and that they're going to, in the future, implement. So if we kind of, you know, do half the job, then when they go out, they only learned half the job and they only do half the job. Versus them being able to go on to be successful equipment managers uh, in their own right, and and going to to great clubs and continuing to move up that ladder. Um, I don't think that all the time as equipment managers we understand or we see the big picture to that. We get very caught up in our day to day and what's going on at the club, and sometimes miss the part about you know. Listen, if I take shortcuts all the time, then I'm teaching my guys to do that. And then when I put them, you know, when, when they get that opportunity to go out on their own, um, then they're not going to be successful, and, and that's going to be because of me and and what I'm teaching them to do. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. And I, I, we, I think we also need to remember that, that um, equipment management isn't for everybody. Yep. Uh, I've got one of my uh, assistant technicians actually – left to go take a head position at a, um, at a small 18 hole facility close that was closer to his home. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. And was making, uh, and the compensation was higher, but he wound up coming back mm-hmm. after a couple of years because he said, you know, John, I just really, um, I, I just don't really want that level of, responsibility for the whole facility and I really want to work for you. And right. that really made me feel good. Sure. Uh, he said, you know, I like the way you run your shop and I, I know what the expectations are and, but I have all the tools and equipment that I need to get the work done here. And I said, well, you know, welcome back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and he's, you know, the guy drives the furthest of all my guys, uh, to get down here. But, uh, he's, uh, he's one of the first ones here in the morning and, uh, just really happy to be working in the environment. And it's, um, because the environment is, uh, you know, we do work in the, in a dynamic environment, things change every day, things pop up, things can happen. 
but still he knows that he's working in some place that he can, he, he knows that he's got, um, a, a stable environment to work in. Right. Uh, the, uh, the facilities are here. The, it's, it's safe, well-lit, clean, and, uh, and he knows what the expectations are. So, yeah. um, I think that, uh, it, it, it really all comes down to communication, um, com- communicating the expectations and, and, uh, what the, what the desired outcome is. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Favorite subject, last subject. Let's talk compensation. <laughs> oh, okay. So sure. how do you, yeah. So how do you think that should be determined? I mean, GCSA does their survey of salaries, right? We know that they do it for superintendents. They do it for us. And you know, so, so how does the superintendent equipment manager figure out what's a fair salary for them? Well, um, what's the show? Uh, that's the first question that I, uh, that I ask is mm-hmm. this, um, is this a top 100 club that, uh, has a PGA tour event and on and on and on, right. or is this a, uh, a, an admittedly low budget, uh, or middle of the road budget place with, uh, older facilities and so on and so forth. So as an equipment manager, I'm looking at, you know, what is the show? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish here? Um, uh, and uh, what are the resources that they have available? Is this a, um, a purchased fleet that's going to be, you know, 15 years old when I get into the shop and have to deal with all this stuff? Or do, are they set up on a uh, capital equipment uh, replacement program of some sort? Not necessarily saying that it would need to be a, a, a lease deal, but some sort of a, uh, a capital equipment management program uh, where they're they're turning over stuff at, at a at a at a known um, uh, term. So. Then what is the local market? Uh, are we working in uh, Naples, Florida, with the highest golf density per capita on the planet, or are we working in the middle of Nebraska, where there you know there isn't a golf course for miles and miles and miles? Is you know what then? So there's those kind of those kind of you know, what's the market? What's the show? Uh, what are the expectations? Um, and because you can have this uh, uh, golf course out in the middle of an island that uh, on an island that uh, is the expectations are that it's going to be the number one course on the planet. And does everybody know what that uh, what that costs realistically, uh, logistically to achieve uh, those goals? So. The bottom line is, heck, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is it is so definitely tough, right? There are, there are so many variables. Yeah. Um, you got to pay your dues, uh, meaning you've got to have something, um, some uh, skill set that is established that you have to offer uh, as an equipment manager. 
uh, and the golf course uh, has to have um, has to have their set of expectations, what they uh, expect to achieve uh, with a known um, known budget. And trying to make those meet in the middle sometimes is difficult, especially now with uh, you know record low unemployment levels. Uh, equipment managers aging out of the system, so to speak, uh, faster than we're attracting uh, new talent into the system. And it, it's, um, I would like to be able to say, okay, I think the equipment managers ought to make, make uh, pick a number, $60,000 per 18 holes. There mm. you go. That's what I think an equipment manager ought to make. Yeah. Is that realistic? I don't think so. Uh, because there's just so many variables that come into play. I think that an equipment manager ought to be able to make uh, $250,000. Is that realistic? Heck no. Uh, if, if you could walk on water in this business <laughs> and uh, you know be able to just uh, t- repair and maintain equipment with your positive aura, I don't think I still don't think that anybody would come off of that much money to for the task. It, it has to be a reasonable outcome for the outlay. It, it's a business after all. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the shock that comes uh, to whether it be the Greens Committee in charge or a GM that's in charge or whoever's in charge of the compensation. Uh, for the equipment manager, ultimately, uh, I think it's incumbent on the superintendent or, or whoever's in charge of the golf maintenance facility to uh, communicate these needs on up the uh, the chain of command, so that uh, you know all of these things aren't um, uh, a, a big surprise to to whoever's. Uh, being requested to come off of the of the dollars to, to hire somebody, um, the the best thing that we can do is to educate our stakeholders in you know this is the market, this is where we're going, and we frankly should have been doing this for for years. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you have a a technician, uh, an equipment manager that you know is going to retire or um, you know, he's been talking about uh, moving to uh, the Midwest or the down south or wherever it is. Uh, you need to have it in the pipeline uh, management-wise to know, hey, this is coming up. We've, we're we going to have to look at replacing this position or adding a position, whatever it is, uh, to manage our expectations and this is, you know, this is what it's going to cost us. We're going to... <laughs> the old saying, if you want to play, you got to pay. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's that kind of thing that comes into it, too. If we want to step up our game as a facility and take us to the next level, you know, I'm into motorsport. And I know that um, when I'm driving my car on the racetrack, it's really easy at first to, to knock seconds off of your lap time. But as you get faster and faster and faster, it takes a lot more to knock even one or two tenths off of your lap time. And that's what people in the, in the uh, management of golf courses need to realize is that, okay, we're at a certain level where we're triplexing greens, we're 
um, uh, you know, we're mowing at a certain frequency, whatever it may be. Okay, now we want to move to walk mowing greens and upping our mowing frequency and so on and so forth. Well, in some cases, that's an exponential increase in in cost to get a certain uh, operation done. And if the uh, if the golfers uh, aren't requesting all this this higher level or expecting a, a higher level, then why as a business would you would you put out the money to to, to make that increase? Right. Um, you, you follow me there? Yeah. It's just I, I I I really see some people saying, well, we want this this uh, we want to be like um, Augusta National, you know down the road, uh, and what does that take? Well, look at what Augusta National has to do to achieve their uh, their playing conditions uh, for Masters Week. All right. I don't, think, I don't think a lot of people, even in this business, realize just how much goes into that prep, yeah. uh, what, it, what it takes to achieve that level. Um, and if... if if you want to be realistic about expectations and and where you can get, then uh, then it makes it easier to make that budget decision. But of course, I feel like, from my position, I feel like we are uh, the equipment manager role is um, right up there with a golf course superintendent as far as as um, uh, impact to the outcome. Sure. Uh, uh, you've got the, I like to say that, you know, the, the golf course superintendent or director of agronomy provides the canvas that I paint. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, I'm, I'm maintaining more of a capital investment to the club than any other department, uh, on the property, more than, uh, tennis more than aquatics, more than uh, any you know food and beverage, uh, all of that. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a big it's a big question, and you, you know we you, you go back and forth. Uh, you know, um, I, from the point of view, it's really. It comes down to communication um, and expectations. What what do you expect to have as a result? And uh, communicating to the stakeholders what it's going to require to get there. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when you know when I got out of college, I think the average salary for an equipment manager was about twenty five to twenty nine thousand um, dollars, and the positions come a long way since then. You know, I know oh, yeah. qu- quite a few guys are making over a hundred thousand dollars now. So, you know that that alone tells you. You know, we were never even sniffing that before, um, and, right. and so there's some big waves being made in that. And some of that is supply and demand. You know, a big part of that is supply and demand. I think um, right. where guys are paying because they have to pay. You know, and that that's what it comes down to. But you know, there's a couple of things that I think are important in this process. Number one is not all equipment managers are created equal, meaning not all of them have a, the same skill sets, but bring the same things, the same value to the club. So 
from a superintendent's aspect, understanding what that value needs to be in terms of the job description and making sure that it matches what exactly you're looking for, but also exactly. communicating the expectations. Right. And, and, but the biggest, you know, the biggest thing is understanding that, you know, you, if you want a guy that can do all of these things, it's going to cost more if you want them to do it well. And, and the, the, the better you want it done, the more potentially it could cost. And, and, and it's hard to know who can do some of those things well. It, without right. being an equipment manager yourself and going in and seeing some of how things are operated, it's very difficult in an interview to tell how good someone is at specific things, specific specifically in our business, because you know, yeah. lack of knowledge that, that everyone has. The, uh, I think that's where the equipment manager certificate program can really help. Sure. Um, you know, potential applicants uh, to demonstrate that yes, I do have this skill set, and I am. Uh, engaged enough in my profession to uh, to go ahead and and take these tests and do the work that I need to do to to be able to pass them. Right. Um, so uh, I, I think that's really been a, a, a great benefit to superintendents uh, to have uh, a tool. It's it's not the only tool. I think you know you you've got to be able to. Uh, to, to get along with somebody through an interview and, and get that, that feeling. But I, I think that that's another, another big uh, potential uh, a part of it is, is having those uh, certificates under your belt yeah. or requiring them. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think on the equipment manager side of things, right, it is when you're looking at a job, number one, uh, understanding the time commitment that's involved. You know, if I, if I'm a club that's paying a hundred thousand dollars and you see that and you're like, Oh man, but you're the only guy there. Then <laughs> what's the value of that hundred grand? If you're there for 75, 80 hours a week, you know, and you have zero right. home life and for a single person, that may be great. But at some point right. the wife's going to say, you know, I don't see you much anymore. Um, so, so you got to pay attention to that. And, and number two, never take a job for what's promised. Uh, down the road, take it for what you're getting today. And, right, you know, right. I, you, so many times you get, oh, yeah, we're going to build a new maintenance facility in the next two years, and you'll be a part of the design, and they never go through. And the whole right. reason that you took the job was you were going to get this new great maintenance facility, and it never sh- you never got it. So right. be be okay with what you're getting when, when, you, when the time comes that you start the job, so that way you're not let down when those things don't happen uh, down the road. Because uh, I know a lot of guys that get get stuck into that where they're they're signing an agreement because of what's to come, and I am certainly one of those that has done that in the past, and that's why I'm stressing it. Where you know you <laughs> you you say, okay, I'm going to take this job because of what's to come, and it never comes, and you spend seven years yep. d- seven years there doing it, and it never it never uh, it never happens. So um, th- that's just it's one of those things that you got to be careful of, and. And uh, when you're looking at these jobs, make sure that they make sense. You know, I want, I want to make, I want to the, the best facility in the area, and here's forty thousand dollars a year to do it. Well, you know, yeah, from a repair and maintenance standpoint, you know, that may be just enough to <laughs> to keep the equipment running. You know, you may have a fleet yeah. of thirty six holes. And then from the employer standpoint too, mm-hmm. um, I think that there's some. Uh, I know that there's some uh, out there who who say, well, when uh, when so and so 
so retires, we'll be able to save money oh, yeah. uh, bringing in the replacement because we won't have to pay him as much money. We've been giving this guy increases over the years. What they don't realize or think about is how much the market has changed over the years that the first person has been there and think that they're going to be able to um, save money, quote, unquote, mm -hmm. um, by offering a, a lower salary uh, to a replacement. And it's not always the case. In fact, it, it really winds up, you know, that person's been making cost of living increases and the cost of living has increased over the years that that person's been there. So to uh, to expect that you're going to save a whole bunch of money, uh, now maybe, you know, uh, Joe Blow, whoever was there before, really wasn't worth the money. Um, you shouldn't hold that against the, his replacement because right. uh, who hired the guy, yeah. right? It's the, the person who hired the guy, um, uh, has had to live with this uh, this uh, poor uh, hiring uh, for however long. So, um, yeah, it goes both ways. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard a little bit of everything myself. You yeah. know, we're going to build a new facility. We're going to get all new equipment. <laughs> You're going to be the corporate equipment manager for mm -hmm. multi-courses or, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on with yeah. uh some of the things that are promised and it's just what comes down to what's in writing at that time. Um, and, uh, and you gotta be able to live with that because, because then everything else is gravy. If it comes your way, great. If not, you know, well, it wasn't ever promised to begin with. Yeah. So. One, well, you know, on the other side of that too, you got guys that are in some primary, you know, some prime positions that aren't <laughs> maybe aren't suited for that. And, then on the right. other side of it, maybe from the club standpoint, right, they get rid of a guy that they probably should have kept. And it's the, it's the guy after him that actually makes the money they should have paid the first guy because they would have got more, right. you know, they would have got, that was all he was looking for. And it's the mm -hmm. generally, and I think it works that way for superintendents as well, that, you know, obviously the next guy that comes in gets everything he wants that the last guy was asking for. I think that's kind of the joke that kind of goes around is, you know, I was asking for that for years and never got it. And the new guy comes in and he gets it all. Um, so just things to, you know, things to think about our business is crazy in some of these ways, you know, it doesn't make sense sometimes, you know, the cost that it takes to hire a new person and then he's got to be trained. Then you got to understand how he works and what the communication is going to be like. And so a year later, you're, you're finally understanding if this guy's the right fit or, or he isn't and whether you made a mistake or you didn't. So, um, so anyway, you know, certainly interesting talk. I don't know that we came up with a number. I didn't think that we would come up with a number um, <laughs> just because of all the different things that are out there from the quality of the equipment manager, meaning what their knowledge is, what their value is, uh, their business knowledge, their, you know, their knowledge on, on the job itself and what other values that they may bring. But, you know, at the same time, the clubs and their ability to be able to pay uh, what the premium for a premium equipment manager is. Um, and I think that's starting to be harder and harder question to answer. You know, can we afford that? Or are we willing to settle with less? And you, I think as a club, you have to determine, you know, what is the value of your fleet and your facility? And then what is it, what makes sense to pay someone to take care of that? You know, the better the, right. better the individual in that shop and facility, 
the better maintained your equipment is, the longer essentially you could take to replace it. Um, but then when you're looking at a lease as well, the better, the better condition that that stuff goes back, the better residual you get on the next one. Uh, hopefully if you're negotiating that, but, uh, all things to think about when you're, when you're hiring somebody. So, uh, John, I've kept you here for an hour and seven minutes. So seven minutes passed, but I think it was great conversation. And, and, uh, as always, I, I, uh, enjoy talking to you, um, and I'm sure I will, we'll do more of these in the future and, and have some other subjects to talk about. So thanks for your time today, and uh, I really appreciate it. Great. Happy to do it, Stephen. Always good to talk with you. All right, man. Have a uh, great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care.